When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first time I sang a note was when I started singing opera. I didn't grow up singing any other style of music, pop music, hip hop, or any of that kind of stuff. Maybe to my fault, I am a one-trick pony. I am an opera singing opera singer. <laughs> like I, I'm horrible at singing any other t- kind of music. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it's always lovely to see you, but I must know immediately whose voice did we hear at the top of the show? Yeah, yes, we heard the dulcet tones of the great Ryan Speedo Green. He's an opera-based baritone on the rise who's playing his first lead role at the Metropolitan Opera in Terrence Blanchard's Champion. Oh, muscle. And why did you want to speak with him? Are you an opera head? I wouldn't exactly call myself an opera head. I'm opera curious. You know, my best friend from childhood is an opera composer conductor. Uh, He's actually friends with Speedo. So I got to say to Speedo, like, oh, you know, I bring you well wishes. My editor at Bloomsbury is a huge opera fan. And, you know, we live in a city with the, Mm -hmm. I live, we don't live anymore. We don't live in the same one anymore. Oh boy. We, meaning Cameron and I live in uh, the city (laughs) that has the Metropolitan Opera. So, you know, I I feel like as I get older, like it's unexplored territory that I want to get more and more into. so I've enjoyed that part of, uh, you know, middle age, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm hardly an expert. And so why, why did you want to speak with Speedo now? Oh, yeah. Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, Terrence Blanchard, who is best known for doing the scores to Spike Lee's movies, um, is becoming a force in opera due to this opera he did called Fire Shut Up in My Bones. But Champion was actually the opera he wrote first. Mm. And Speedo, who had an important role in Fire Shut Up in My Bones, has now graduated to playing leading men with this show. And, and I knew that, like, it was a big deal for him in his career. But also, as you'll hear him discuss, like, it's a lot of work to play a boxer and be an opera singer at the same time. And I was just really fascinated both by where we are in his career as a creative artist and the creative challenges of opera. Oh, that is so interesting. Before we get to the interview, I'm thinking it would probably be useful for listeners to hear how Speedo's singing voice sounds. So how about we listen to a few lines from one of his arias from the show? Okay, wow. So that was Speedo singing the aria What Makes a Man a Man from the show Champion that the Met put on YouTube. And there are a couple of things. First of all, 
he's kind of strutting around in his box, not his boxer shorts, but yeah, his boxer, the shorts that boxers wear, right? Boxing shorts, not boxer boxing shorts. Boxing shorts. I guess. <laughs> Yes. Um, and so, you know, his chest is exposed. You know, it's a very physical role. And the singing, obviously, that was, uh, you know, a one one person singing there. Um, but would you say that's kind of typical of the vibe of Champion? It's typical of a vibe of Champion because mm. there's a lot of different musical vibes or perhaps styles and genres going on at once. So you heard there it in its kind of American classical mode, right? Like if you're mm. familiar with the way that American classical music and uh, has engaged with kind of folk melodic traditions, you can really hear that there, you know? Mm. There is yep. also jazz. There is also Afro-Caribbean. There is also uh-huh. the kind of more cinematic style that Blanchard is known yeah. for, you know, in, in his composition work. So no one song is going to capture the totality of the show. But I think that does capture how deeply felt and engaged Speedo is in the role. Wow. All right. Well, I cannot wait to hear uh, your interview, but I believe that you have an extra segment exclusively for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? Yes, absolutely. We talk about Speedo's career, where he is in it, uh, uh, being a 37-year-old who's having leading roles, a bass baritone that's actually kind of young for that. Mm-hmm. And so just talking about where he sees himself going and what his kind of dream parts are over the next few years. All right. Well, if you're a member of Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of the episode. And if you aren't, it is so ridiculously easy to join. As a Slate Plus member, you'll get to hear extra segments on this show and on others like The Waves and Culture Gabfest. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Big Mood, Little Mood and Apple's Podcast of the Year, Slow Burn. And of course, you will never hit a paywall on Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. All right. Let's hear Isaac's conversation with Ryan Speedo Green. Ryan Speedo Green, thank you so much for joining us today on Working to Talk About Your Process. Thank you for having me. So I thought, you know, why not start with where we are right now, which is to say you are playing Emile Griffith, the protagonist of Champion, an opera by Terrence Blanchard with libretto by Michael Christopher that's currently running at the Met. So let me just ask, on a show day, you're performing at night. What is your day like leading up to that? For this particular show, it's a little bit different than other ones. I'm not going to lie. Like uh, when you're portraying a character, first of all, that's an athlete. Also, portraying a character that has to be half naked on stage for uh, certain moments on in the performance, uh, you you go about differently in your day. And so like my day, uh, for instance, will start off with me getting up, drinking like a liter of water, um, spreading out my caffeine intake more patiently because usually I, I have like two cups of coffee right when I wake up, but because I need, yeah, to, I need to conserve my energy and have like one cup of coffee, more water than coffee. Kind of, kind of deal when I wake up. And then uh, usually I go for a jog or a walk, either a long walk or a short jog. My Even the food that I eat for this show is different than a, a normal show. Um, so, for instance, um, I have like a bunch of berries, like, you know, try and, try and stick to like a, not too many green foods because as much as they're healthy and delicious during the week, during the show day, they make you feel really bloated and, and obviously make you poop. 
<laughs> and be right. nasty. And that's not something you want to have while you're like, uh, you know, taking punches or giving punches or, you know, being half naked. So uh, I stick to like, you know, a lot of proteins that are like a chicken with no skin, not a lot of seasoning. If I do eat any sort of vegetable, it's a vegetable that doesn't, that's not very fibrous. And then um, I usually show up to the Met probably two hours before the show starts mm-hmm. um, because uh, not only for to warm up, which, you know, you do, you, sh- you should be doing before any show, but also because of the, there's a lot of costumes and costume changes in this show, particularly for me. Yeah. So how long is your vocal warm up? So what I like to do is uh, right after I have my sort of wake up my body workout, semi-workout, I like to come home around like 11, 12 o'clock and start the process of doing about 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes of a vocal warm up. You know, whether that means going through all my scales, you know, uh, um, a lot of lip trills, maybe singing one or two pages of each section of my role because the role that I'm doing now of Emil Griffith and Champion um, I mean, it's about, uh, in the two hour and some change opera, I have about 50, 60 minutes of music. Mm. So, um, I am, you know, I sing a couple pages of each number just to make sure that it's, it's in my head, in my body. And obviously like I, I there's a lot of staging involved with the show more so than combination of like four or five roles that I've done together. So I, I tend to want to go over that too. In my living room, I just go over some of the staging, like, be here, movement here. And, and so, uh, uh, what my voice teacher, uh, Mark Oswald told me and has helped me a lot is after you do your big warm up, you know, the 20 to 30 minutes of warm up, just do a checkup on your voice every hour or a couple hours, just like two minute, three minute checkup where you just, you know, if I warm up at 11 o'clock to 1130 around one o'clock, I'll sing for like two minutes, three minutes just to make sure it's everything's good. And I'll do that about every hour, every two hours until I show up at the Met two hours before the show. Then I'll do another like 10, 20 minute warm up, And then from there, I don't sing a lick till I get on stage. Cause you don't want to blow it out. You don't want to blow it out. And that's one of the things that I've, you know, the bigger the role, the less you want to be talking and using your voice throughout the day. And that's something as this is my first lead role, my first major role in my career, you know, and the, this, you not only have to look out for your voice, but you have to look out for your brain as well. Like, you know, sometimes we can be our own worst enemy as artists. And I, I can attest to this. <laughs> Even if I tell myself like, you know, you're ready, the nerves hit. And that's something that, uh, that I've had to also like get used to. Yeah, Totally. You know, one thing that really blows my mind about opera coming from a theater background is the way that the rehearsal process is structured. So like in a normal play, you probably have like four weeks of rehearsal. The full cast is in the room. You're rehearsing six days a week. You know, you eventually you're teching, you're dressing, you have previews, and then you're running one show, the same show. There's no rep, you know, six performances a week or whatever for three to six weeks. Uh, definitely not how it works in opera at all. So, so how many rehearsals did you have for champion, like actual official rehearsals as opposed to like working on it on your own? This production, which as you saw, I mean, I believe you said you saw it Monday opening night. Yeah. And as you, as, and, and I don't know if you'd agree with me, but for me in my short little operatic career, um, I'm 37 years old, which is why I say it's a short operatic career because, uh, most people in my, um, Voice type don't really start popping off till they're in their 40s. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm very lucky that I'm doing it so early in my career. But uh, um, this is probably the most theatrical, if not Broadway-like show I've ever been a part of. It is a lot like a musical. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the how the numbers relate to the narrative, also in terms of like the lighting rig, and yeah, no, it it very much felt like um like a cousin of a Broadway musical almost, and uh, almost like uh, and it had everything a modern opera needs to be modern. Right. It's shorter than than a lot of uh, classical operas, but that's also great for modern opera audiences because you know as much as i love being in an opera that's four plus hours you know and singing and being a part of that spectacle because that is a spectacle and within itself for for a person who's not an opera fanatic you know that might be a little much and right. and, and having an opera like this which is two a little bit over two hours which tells a story very crisp very fast very intense and dramatic in a dramatic way that is concise and tells a beginning and an ending it's, it's an exciting experience. And for me, like as a performer and also seeing it as an audience member, I love that idea of, of going to an opera and being able to come home at a decent hour as well as, you know, seeing something that is like gives me no chance to like take a nap. Right. right. You also <laughs> save on the sitter. This is, yeah, that's the baby. Which, you know, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but so how many rehearsals did you actually have for the show? So, yeah, so getting back to the question, yeah, um, this was a special case because I was mentioning that is, yeah. is, is a almost Broadway-like show. We had more rehearsals than normal. So I'm used to having two to three weeks of rehearsal before a show. Mm-hmm. Um, again, which is a show that is four hours long. You can imagine the stress of only having two weeks of rehearsal, sometimes even a week of rehearsal, depending where you are in Europe. Um, This, we had about three and a half, four weeks of rehearsal. So given how little time there is to work on a show, what are you expected to have prepared by day one of rehearsals? In more repertory pieces, Mm -hmm. you have to come in pretty much guns a-blazing, like ready to perform. Like like, uh, I've done shows in the past, I mean... The craziest is I did a Barbara Seville where I sang Basilio and Il Barbieri di Sevilla, Barbara Seville by, by Rossini, um, which is an opera that's longer than this opera. Mm-hmm. And I did it in two days. I had two days of staging and then an orchestra performance. Wow. And so for this particular production, because it is, uh, first of all, brand new to the Met, it's a, not a repertory piece. It's also a piece that, that the composer had to compose more music for, for the Met. We, we had to know the music, but also we had to be ready for things to change. Mm. Because, you, you know, once you get the jazz ensemble with the Met Orchestra in the pit, right. things may change vocally, things may change, uh, you know, you may need to uh, add another part to, a, to an ensemble number or even modulate something or even recompose something completely so that it makes sense in, in a house like the Met. Right. And so for our listeners, again, who maybe haven't seen a show at the Met, the the thing to remember about opera is that, you know, traditionally it is performed without any kind of amplification. And so shows really have to fit within the acoustic world of their houses. And the Met's acoustic world is very particular. And it was not built to have 
a jazz combo in the pit with a brilliant uh, uh, and famously aggressive drummer in it uh, uh, alongside the uh, uh, normal orchestra. So yeah, so there's lots of adjustments having to be made to make sure that the vocals and the orchestration can sort of sit on top of each other properly. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I was very lucky that Terrence beforehand had worked with me on my part uh, to make sure that it fit my voice uh, specifically for this house and for this uh, performance, set of performances, because the person who's the singer before me sing it higher than I did. Oh, got it. So uh, for me, I'm a little bit of a lower bass baritone than the person who sang it before me. So we had to adjust for my voice. And, uh, as, and so I was able to sing things a little bit lower, but as well, like some, some parts of the piece that I was able to add my dramatic high notes that I do have. You know, when I sing high, it's not necessarily the prettiest thing. It's very dramatic. <laughs> but I wouldn't call it like, you know, a sweet, dulcet tone. Like it is a very, right. very dramatic bass baritone high note. And I was able to add those in places where there were no high notes. Uh, right. and, and it made sense within the house and within the story. Right. Uh, got it. Got it. And so yeah, just if I'm looking at a piano, <laughs> what is your range on that on that piano? What is your bass baritone? I think range? I have a good operatic low F below uh, middle C on the piano. And then I have a pretty good uh, like F sharp above middle C. And I actually, the... In this opera, I sing a low F, and I sing a high G. I sing oh boy, wow. high Gs. So at the very end of the show, and I sing a high G, which you probably heard when I'm standing on top of the thing for the, at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm also interested. You know, obviously, you know, you you prepare at least some of. I mean, in this case, because the music's going to change, but you prepare the score. You know, the score. How do you prepare as an actor as well? Because you know you're not just standing there singing, you're playing a, a role and that you've clearly worked hard to think about like who this character is. Uh, you know, it's not the same performance you gave in Boris Godunov or fire shut up in my bones, right? These are different characters. They demand different things. So how do you prepare as an actor? So one thing to, to, for the audience to know is that this opera is pretty amazing and that it, 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 the main character is portrayed in three different aspects of his life so there's old emil which is portrayed by eric owens and then there's young emil which is me which is uh basically emil in his prime like from leaving his home in the virgin islands to his rise to be the six-time welterweight champ of the world to his fall to where he st he first uh had first signs of dementia and uh and then there's kid emil who's betrayed by a child uh singer who portrays Emil as a child, um, is a boy soprano. All three of whom are extraordinary. I have to say, having seen the show, I mean, like, I mean, they're, they're incredible performances, uh, from those three sort of different points in, in, in Emil's life. Yep. And, and so for me, I, uh, when I got the offer for the role, I basically made a promise to myself and I made a promise to Peter Gelp, the general director of the Met and to Terrence Blanchard that I wasn't, not only was I going to put everything into, the music of the role, like portraying this character in the best operatic way possible on the grandest stage, arguably in the world. But I was going to put in the work on my body and my mind to understand not only the physical demands of being a boxer, but also understand the mindset of a boxer. And so I like the day after I accepted the role, I went to a, my gym, 
started taking group boxing classes, found a trainer who worked with uh, Golden Gloves, and he started training me, uh, one-on-one boxing sessions, two, three times a week. I started working with my wife, who's getting a nutritionist license on, on bettering my diet, so I could start to get in uh, physical better shape. Uh, and I ended up losing like 60 plus pounds over the year. That was with a zero, six, zero pounds? 60 plus, like, so like 62 uh, pounds yeah. I lost. So you did an inverse uh, De Niro and Raging Bull. Yeah, yeah. I was about 300 and something pounds uh, when I got the roll offer, and I'm about 245 now. I've learned a lot, both vocally, what I'm capable of, as well as physically, what I'm capable of. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Ryan Speedo Green in just a moment. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com slash working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Listeners, we really want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304 933 W-O-R-K and leave a voicemail. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Ryan Speedo Green. You know, Emil Griffith is a real life figure. 
uh, did you like research him? Is that is research part of your process is, you know, how'd you get sort of into his inner life? Yeah, I, uh, I researched him. I watched his fights specifically like the Benny Perrette fights, um, which he had three of them. The guy who I, uh, one of the antagonists of the show, um, Benny Perrette, uh, who was actually a friend of Emil and Emil fought him three times. And in their third fight, Benny, who had suffered in, in injuries in his last fight before fighting Emil, was like looking for any mental advantage he could have over Emil because obviously the physically he was injured. He decided to sort of break the cardinal fraternal rule of sports and not, you know, to reveal someone's personal life in front of the public and decided to talk about uh, Emil's out of ring activities and called him uh, the Spanish derogatory word for gay. And it angered Emil and Emil ended up uh, killing him in the ring. He hit him, you know, arguably 17 to 27 times in seven seconds, put him in a coma. And then 10 days later he died. Mm. You play Emil over the course of, uh, it's almost like 25 years, right? The, yeah. the first song so, when you no, appear well, in well, the- I play Emil over the, yeah, uh, from a teenager uh, to, so it's, a, it's actually a span of like, I want to say 15 years, 15 to 17 years. Got it. Yeah. How did you think about tracking the age kind of in your body and, and mannerisms over the course of the show? So like when you first see me, I'm uh, almost innocent, like, Innocent in a sense of uh, growing up in the same place my whole life, going on this journey to travel to America, to live my dream of being a hat-making, singing baseball player. Right. That's the kind of innocence that this young man had traveling to America, to New York City from the Virgin Islands. And then that's when you first see me. And then when I get my, you know, I become a hat maker, which is like, great for me i get discovered at the hat factory by howie uh who is howie albert who is the owner of the hat factory and also plays the the trainer which is basically combining two characters in one in emil's life he discovers me he's like this guy is should be making hats he has the body of a, of a boxer he should be a boxer let me train him and my mother who sees opportunity to make money and sort of better our lives says you know instead of being a hat maker you should be a boxer and I don't want to be a boxer. I want to make hats. But she sees the potential to make more money and better herself in the process. Right. right? So she she pushes me to be a boxer. And I have a natural talent for it. And then you see my character sort of also discover his, uh, his sexuality. Like, you know, his, the first experiences of him going to a nightclub where he sees you know men dancing with men and you know you get to see the aspect of his sort of uh becoming a man you know mm-hmm. and uh and realizing his love for for men and i get to betray that as well and then sort of the turmoil of society at the time telling me that that's not what a man is right and then you get to also to have that discovery where he has to come face to face with people who he doesn't want to know his personal life, knowing it or at least suspecting it. 
And, and when you're preparing emotionally for something like that opera, watching you, it doesn't feel like you're just riding the music where it takes you emotionally, but like, like how do you get into the character in that moment and sort of access that, that difficult conflict? Yeah. I mean, I identify as, as, as heterosexual. I'm a heterosexual male. Um, right. but I have many, I'm an ally. I have many, many friends who are LGBTQ plus and I have listened to their stories since I was in college. Like I met my first openly gay man when I was in college. I grew up in the South where there are, there are a lot of LGBTQ plus people around me growing up even, but they weren't open about it. Mm-hmm. And even the closest people to me, uh, older adults, like even the person who I who was one of the my adopted fathers growing up, who was a gay man, but he never openly talked about it to me or told me as a young man. I didn't I didn't question it. I didn't think about it. I just thought that this man was amazing and and better to me than my own father. But uh, it was until college where I met my first openly uh, gay adult, and he was my uh, fraternity brother my fraternity and pledged with me and uh, basically I answered all my questions because I had so many questions as a, as a straight man uh, to ask a gay man because nobody in my life I had could ask these questions and and it was and it was an, I think every every straight man should have that opportunity to have those kind of conversations with a gay man uh, or LGBTQ plus member of the community to, to be able to ask those questions and not be afraid to ask them and get the answers the truthful answers because if you don't ask questions, if you don't have those conversations, then you'll never educate yourself. You'll just be a closed-minded bigot, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I was so lucky, so blessed that I was able to have that kind of experience as an 18, 19-year-old you know, young man. And for me, like, I, it, it's an honor and a privilege to represent a complex character like Emil, who, you know, his, his not only... A character getting able to show another aspect of love on stage of the Met and a sexual, sexy scene, you know, uh, with my colleague uh, um, Ed, who uh, if you go on the Met's social media, you'll be able to see our uh, clip of our duet, which is steamy as hell. So be ready. It's steamier than a normal uh, opera number, for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, it is. And how lucky am I that I get to have my first stage kiss on stage (laughs) be with Ed, you know? Yeah, totally. I've I've not kissed a woman or or a man on stage, and my first show I get to kiss both. So, you know, kill kill multiple birds with one stone. Um, You know, the research that I had to go into, I had the, the foundation already to, you know, through all the stories that I heard, through my, you know, my LGBTQ plus colleagues. And if I, I would tell anybody out there, get those stories because you'll never know when you have to portray a character. Even if you're a woman portraying a pants role, you know, like Carabino or something like that, like, you know, you, you know maybe talk to one of your, uh, your male colleagues and ask them about how their experiences as a young man, you know, going through puberty, falling in love with, a, with, with every woman you see. Right, (laughs) you know, or you know, as or even as a straight man portraying a gay man, or a gay man portraying a straight man, because even if you are uh, LGBTQ plus, you know, your experiences are going to be different than a straight woman or a straight man. 
Right. And just to know, have those conversations, those stories, you know, with someone you trust, I think is incredibly important. This is your second time working with Terrence Blanchard because you were also in Fire Shut Up in My Bones. Uh, and yet, the, you know, this opera was done before with a different actor playing uh, uh, young Emil. Can you talk a little bit about your collaboration with Terrence and how it's grown or changed over these two operas? Because you, you already mentioned earlier, for example, some of the part had to be adjusted for your range. And, you know, um, he's a brilliant composer of long standing, uh, but this was the first major opera he wrote, if I remember correctly. Um, and you have a, a huge, you know, experience with opera itself. So can you just talk a little bit about, I don't know what your collaboration is, is like and, and how you two work together. First of all, like even the, the, the buildup of me working with Terrence for the first time was by chance. Mm -hmm. My entire life has been about breaking preconceptions of what opera is, you know, and who can sing opera. Because, you know, for maybe the, the normal person, what they consider an opera singer and what opera is would not necessarily be me and not necessarily be Terrence Blanchard. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and, uh, and that's an amazing aspect of my career so far as it is, you know, and also Terrence's. But um, what I can also, you know, break the preconception of opera fans is, is that, you know, when people see a person of color – especially opera fans, they may have a certain preconception of what is a, a person of color singing opera. Like, you know, maybe, oh, this person probably had a gospel background or a church background or something like this. And that's not the case with me. Like, I did not grow up singing in the church. I was the kid in the back sleeping on the pews during the service. You know, my mom was kicking me to wake up, uh, you know, or and I was also the kid who, like, you know, I did not grow up listening to opera. I did not grow up thinking about opera, even considering doing it or even liking it. It happened later in my life. Even singing, I never grew up singing. I, I was not, I was the kid, you know, I'd rather go play Pokemon cards than, you know, go sing anything. And the first time I sang a note was when I started singing opera. So the irony is like, I'm probably the purest form of opera singer that there is. Like probably more <laughs> right. so than opera singers because I didn't grow up singing any other style of music, pop music, hip hop, any of that kind of stuff. I grew up singing opera. When I first started mm. singing, it was opera. And my voice was first used to sing opera. And so when, when um, a lot of singers in Fire Ship My Bones and in Champion were people who grew up in the church, people who grew up singing R&B, people, you know, a lot of the singers of color involved with it were those kind of singers um, who had that musical background at a very young age. And so uh, when I got the offer to sing in Fire Shit of My Bones, it was only because the guy who originally was singing Uncle Paul in, in Fire Shit of My Bones, um, the late Arthur Woodley, had passed away. And so the Met came to me and asked me if I would be willing, you know, and able to sing his role. And I was like, of course, you know, an opportunity to open the Met season, you know, in Fire Shit of My Bones and work with a, the first ever African-American composers to, to, to have his music performed at the Met. Are you kidding me? Please sign me up. And when Terrence, at least this is what I've been told, is when Terrence first heard me sing, because he, he, had, he had heard Arthur Woodley sing before, because Arthur Woodley had sung in uh, Champion mm -hmm. and in Fire Shut of My Bones. He had sung in before. When he heard me sing in the first rehearsal, he looked over to the music staff and was like, why isn't this guy singing more of my music? <laughs> and, 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 and I would argue that I was the first kind of operatic voice of my style to be singing in a, in a role of his. How do you define that style, by the way? Uh, purely operatic. 
like like purely operatic. And, Got it. And, without and, without a without an R and B sort of tinge or a rock and roll tinge. Or, yeah, yeah, like whatever. I mean, uh, Latanya has has a, an incredible background, like one of the most multi genre type of voices on the planet. And same thing with right, Angel right. Blue. Same thing with Will Liverman. So, you know, like uh, Arthur Woodley. All of these singers who have sung in Terrence's operas have are are, are multi genre singers. And I can, I mean, maybe to my fault, I, I, I am a one-trick pony. I, I am an opera singing opera singer. <laughs> like I, I'm horrible at singing any other t- kind of music. You, you don't go do karaoke sometime. You're not just like let's let, let's go do karaoke and put on the the Pointer Sisters or something. Yeah, when I do sing karaoke, I'm there to shock you, maybe scare you. Um, I'm the kind of guy who will I will try and sing some White Snake at a karaoke. Amazing, <laughs> and it is the most operatic white snake. <laughs> incredible, incredible. Yeah. yeah. So when when in in Champion, it was a huge stepping out of my comfort zone to sing it. If I think about the duet at the bar with uh, with Ed, which is the sultry, really like I mean, in the second act, it is the most jazziest number in the second act. Like like the purest form of jazz on stage of the Met that you'll see. Right. And, and it is so out of my comfort zone. But Terrence really pushed me, as well as the music staff, Yannick and everybody at, working at the Met, to sing it with my voice. Sing it with an operatic voice, and it'll come through. And if you listen to it, you'll, you'll, you'll see it. Like, it, it can only be sung that way. Like, and Ed, you know, who, who has that multi-genre voice as well, you know, he, he sings it very jazzy. And, and I sing it, you know, I put my voice to the jazz style the operatic voice to the jazz style. And I think that really showcases how important Terrence's music is and how his music can fit in the operatic world. Well, Ryan Speedo Green, thank you so much for joining us this week to talk to us about your work and your process. It's been a pleasure having you. It's an honor. Thank you. Up next, Isaac and I will talk about preparation and how creative people who work in other genres can learn from the very specific artistic demands of being an opera singer. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, You don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Oh my God, Isaac, I am absolutely in love with Ryan Speedo Green. What a sweetheart. Yeah, he's a mensch. It's very clear. And it was really fascinating to hear Speedo's singing history, you know, that opera is the only kind of singing that he's done. 
And it sounds like the only kind he has any interest in doing. I mean, obviously, voices can be trained. And for opera, they must be trained, whatever the raw material you come with. But there's a certain element or you have it or you don't in opera singing that doesn't necessarily have a parallel in, say, writing fiction or being in a rock band. Isaac, since you were a child actor and were clearly aware of having that particular talent at an early age, I have to ask you how that resonated for you and how your awareness of talent played out when you decided to give up acting. Maybe this is a dodge, but I'm not going to start with talking about myself for a second. <laughs> I talk about myself enough. Uh, but I will just say that the more I study the history of art and talk to working artists, the more I think that that while natural talent is, of course, extremely important, uh, that even if you never have formal training, you need to have a technique and a toolbox at your disposal. It's true mm-hmm. of athletes. It's true of artists, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. I watch a lot of tennis, you know, and there's certain mm-hmm, natural mm-hmm. gifts that you can have that make you better or worse a better or worse prospect as a tennis player but you also need to have a huge amount of technique and a huge amount of training and i think the true same is true for art you know even a rock musician who's never taken a formal music lesson in their life has a lot of technique that they will have built up over the years yeah i mean i definitely had talent as an actor i really believe that not that i've gone back and watched a videotape of myself performing (laughs) or anything because you know uh i'd want to die but i do think (laughs) i have had talent as an actor What I didn't have is the toughness and discipline to develop the real technique that would have made me uh, into a good actor who is more than just like a bag of tricks that get me applause. I want to see those videos now. Um, I am so glad you asked Speedo about his daily schedule because I remember speaking with the mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton for working back in April 2020. And she told me that for many of the reasons that Speedo mentioned, she can't eat a quote-unquote proper meal, in other words, the big meal of the day, until after performance, which often means after midnight or later. Speedo's preparation for this role was so physical and so committed, but it made me wonder about artists who work in other forms. Isaac, are you conscious of shifting the shape of your workday and your life schedule to support the particular project you're working on at the time? Uh, yes, actually. And I don't think yeah. it's just the people on stage you have to worry about this. The, a thing I realized as a young man directing plays, I'm, I'm going to try to talk the, about this shortly, but but this is how it works. The week before an audience comes in is the hardest part of the process. You're oh. exhausted. The pressure is really high. You're in rehearsals literally 12 hours a day. <sighs> Things are breaking or needing to be restaged <laughs> or cut constantly. The impulse for a lot of people is to lean into that and just live like an animal. I know a lighting designer who only smokes during tech week, (laughs) right? And then he's like a chain smoker or whatever, but during the rest of the time, he lives a really healthy life. I realized eventually that I actually had to live healthier during that time because Uh I really needed to be on the ball and I just couldn't have any part of my brain distracted by my body. Right. And Uh so I would, you know, eat edamame and white rice for (laughs) dinner. I mean, it was like, I would eat really Mm. simply. I would just drink a lot of water, you know, stuff like that. In terms of writing, I'll I'll give you an example. If I'm on a deadline, I'm not going to drink or get high you know, the mm-hmm. night before a major writing day, just simply because yeah, my yeah. brain needs to be all there. I write best in the morning. So I try to keep the mornings free. Um, if I'm having a crazy time in terms of my schedule or whatever, I try to find the pocket of times where I can watch a relevant movie, do project management, somehow yeah. touch the project every day until mm-hmm. I have a moment to dig in. 
you know, I have a really bad chair that I sit in to write that I'm actually sitting in right now that gave me back <laughs> problems that needed physical oh. therapy. So now I have stretches that I do. I mean, even just sitting at your desk typing away, creativity is a physical act. And I think musicians yeah. understand this on a really deep level that not everyone else does. Wow. Interesting. In a similar way, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that opera singers need to do vocal warm-ups. And Speedo talked about his vocal warm-up schedule and the checking in. That was fascinating. But I wonder, again, do you have any kind of equivalent? And is your writing warm-up different from your teaching warm-up or your podcast hosting warm-up? Is this something our listeners should be thinking about? <laughs> well, you know, I did have like walk-on music when I was coming to the Slate <laughs> building to record, you know, when we were doing yeah. um, Lend Me Your Ears, which uh, Chad the Great Chow Tu produced. When I was walking to the building, because I live walking distance away, there was like a specific De La Soul song or Whoa. a specific song by The Secret Machines that I would listen to get me like really pumped. Like, yeah, we're going to fucking teach people about Shakespeare today. Um, <laughs> the short answer is actually no. I mean... Mm. I don't have a writing warm-up. Lots of people do. I'm not yeah. ragging on it. Lots of people do yeah. 30 minutes of free writing, five minutes of guided meditation. They do breathing or whatever. Um, an early guest on this show, the great novelist Megan Abbott, talked mm. about some specific writing rituals she has. You know, maybe you light mm. a candle. I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm bad at habit formation, as we've discussed before. But <laughs> oh, also... Yes. I've always been really worried that if I got attached to that stuff, it would interfere with my writing when I wasn't able to do it due to circumstances. And maybe this yeah. is because I started, you know, pretty soon after grad school, I had a kid and I was working around being mm -hmm. a parent, but I just wanted to be the kind of writer who can just drop in and go and not be too yeah. precious about it. I'm at the place where I have breakfast. I finish my coffee and my oatmeal. I'm just going to open the, you know, I'm opening the computer and I'm going. But I feel yeah. like for the people it does work for when I've talked to them about it, it's sort of like you've created an invitation for the muse to arrive. Yeah. And so yeah. I respect yeah. that. What about you? Do you do a lot of, uh, you know, um, once you're <laughs> done with your Zettel casting, <laughs> I'm going to guess, I'm just going to guess mm. that you don't because you come from a freelance writing world with aggressive deadlines and you need to be yeah. able to yeah. like not, you need to be able to just write all the time if you have to. And so I'm going to yeah. guess that even though you love all this productivity stuff, you don't have a pre-writing ritual at all. No, I don't. I do. Yeah, exactly. I just like, well, this is the time now. I'm just going to sit down and do it. Like I'm very conscious of it's my job. And you know, I, I always think about something that Taffy Berdessa Ackner, I think, said to you in your first interview with her of like, you know, my sister or cousin, the podiatrist, doesn't have to have the muse before she can do her job. Why should I? You know, and right. so I, I kind of lean into that. This is my job. I'm just going to do it. It's time for work now. Um, and I'm always inspired by reminding you remembering Roman. You know, Roman was very much like I'm on the buzz or I'm waiting for my kids to come out of school. I've got a scrap of paper. I'm going to write, you know, a million dollar novel right now. And it's going <laughs> to yeah, be amazing. That's not me, but I would do write notes to myself during that time. You know, like I'm working on a bunch of different freelance things right now. And and mm -hmm. so like any when I have downtime, I'm like, oh, don't forget to talk about this and that Shakespeare thing. Oh, don't yeah. forget to talk about yeah, yeah. that and this thing. You know, little yeah. notes to future me. That's smart. I was very moved. I mean, and again, incredibly impressed by Speedo's commitment to this particular role. I mean, the intense physical preparation and transformation Everything about opera is sui generis, as we've said before, but his talk of making a promise to himself and the other people involved in the production 
really inspired me. And it obviously, you know, led to an incredible transformation. So given my <laughs> established and already discussed love of self-improvement and productivity techniques, it made me want to find a similar way of explicitly spelling out my commitments to a new project when I take one on. Is that something you've ever done? Well, I think that's what a nonfiction proposal is. If you want to view it romantically instead of mm. as a mercenary business contract. And, I, and yeah. I'm a romantic, June. So I, I just feel <laughs> like, you know, you're laying out a vision of what that piece is and you're getting money as a result of how you've laid out that vision. So it, it does feel a lot like that. Uh, much like yeah. our creative New Year's resolution yeah. episode that we do every year. You know, I'm not a New Year's resolution guy, but I actually do take those resolutions we make on this show pretty seriously, uh, you know? Mm -hmm. So those are the closest I've gotten. I mean, with Speedo, yeah. obviously part of the commitment had to be physical. He had to go from weighing around 300 pounds to being a convincing boxer, yeah. right? And that's no small feat. And that he did it in that amount of time is uh, uh, pretty amazing. And I do want to say that because I think it's worth pointing out and underlining that we know in the back of our head that an actor's job is very physical, that an actor's material yes. is the self, their instrument is the body, and they work really hard. But I think Speedo's yeah. experience here throws that into mm. really profound relief. You know, the people you're watching on stage or on your screen, they work hard to get to that artistic truth. Oh, my God. No kidding. And I have to say, your point about the nonfiction book proposal, yes, yes, that's a really, really good point. Uh, my experience of writing a book proposal was arduous. It was also fun. Um, and you're right. You're spelling out what you will do and making yourself accountable for a project for the next however many months or years. And so the more work and thought you put into it, the better. And then hopefully you sign a contract. And that's what a contract is, right? Yeah, yeah it absolutely is. All right. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, entire extra episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. You'll get extra segments on shows like ours and the Culture Gab Fest and The Waves. You'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site and you will be supporting our work here on working to learn more go to slate.com slash working plus thank you to ryan speedo green and to our champion producer cameron drews if you'd like to see speedo in action in champion you can see him live through may 13th at the metropolitan opera there will also be an encore screening of champion in movie theaters on may 3rd go to fathomevents.com for more information and to find a screening in your area we'll be back next week with june's conversation with actress connie nielsen will they just talk about gladiator the whole time who knows <laughs> you'll find out when you hear it until then, get back to work. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.